1: When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, (laughs) did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I
2: found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic.
1: Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be
0: filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy.
2: And when you change your energy, you change your life.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders, and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Susan Rice. Susan has had an incredible career in service and government as a diplomat, policy advisor, and public official. After years of speaking on behalf of presidents and the country, Susan finally shares her story in her own words via Tough Love, my story of the things worth fighting for. In this episode, we talk about the tendency to be binary and reductive about women, the scaffolding that's informed her diplomacy and negotiation skills and the one through line that's helped facilitate Susan's growth. It's what she calls tough love, the ability to show up in the world honestly and welcome opportunities for expansion. Susan has a big life and has learned big lessons. And I walked away from our conversation feeling encouraged and inspired. So let's get to my chat with Susan Rice. So tell me why you
1: wrote this book. I really wanted to be able to tell my own story in my own voice after... Eight years in the Obama administration, where my job, which was quite a privilege, was to speak on behalf of the country, on behalf of the United States or and or on behalf of the president, I never was able to express myself in my own words. And yet in that same period, as you'll know, a lot of people were able to express their opinions about me. <laughs> <laughs> Some more informed than others and none as I would have done. So as I say, and I've become, you know, largely because of the notoriety that I achieved after my television appearances discussing Benghazi in 2012. Yeah. You know, I became a heroine and a champion for some on the left and a villain and a criminal for some on the right. And neither one of these caricatures bore any relationship to to who I am and where I came from. I really wanted to to be able to finally speak and and explain precisely who I am and why I think it's worth my telling my own story. And My family story is a rather interesting one. I come from the children of, of immigrants on one side of my family, Jamaican immigrants and descendants of slaves on the other side. And I had these extraordinary grandparents and parents who taught me some extraordinarily valuable life lessons. And then I've had the opportunity to serve nearly 25 years at very senior levels in government and work on some of the toughest policy challenges that we faced. And I I wanted to share many of the lessons that I'd learned personal and professional and to write a, a book that I hope will be valuable for anybody who wants to try to compete and thrive in unforgiving environments. And if they've been knocked down to have the, the courage to get back up.
0: Why do you think we have this tendency now, I think more than ever, to be so binary and so reductive, <laughs> especially about women? I mean, what you describe as being hailed on one side and vilified on the other, really, to me, just underscores this lack of the capability for nuance and complexity. And we're all human beings and we all have complexity in spades. So why do you think now more than ever we're doing this, especially to women?
1: I think it's in, in the orbit in which I've circulated of Washington policy making and politics, it's become especially black and white and binary and to our extraordinary detriment, not only in substance, because you can't deal with the toughest problems we face domestically or internationally in simplistic black and white terms, but also in terms of our politics, because if we only have white hats and black hats and there's no gray and there's no opportunity to collaborate or compromise, we get the kind of paralysis that accompanies the polarization that we now have. And I, I think it may be a particular challenge for women to be lampooned or caricatured, but I think that the larger phenomenon is one more of a function of our politics, our media, our, our political polarization. And the fact that, in my estimation, we have become a society that craves instantaneous everything instantaneous information instantaneous judgments instantaneous decision making and so people don't have the bandwidth or the patience in many instances to dive into nuance and to appreciate complexity and that's a problem that's a real problem
0: yeah I know what I know. Don't mess me up with the facts kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Much less analysis.
0: (laughs) I would love to talk to you a little bit about your childhood, which I found so interesting in terms of the scaffolding, I think, that it gave you psychologically and maybe some of the grit that you have came from this sort of, I don't know if you would call it an adversarial house, but you certainly seem to pass through a very difficult time with your parents' divorce. And your first role as diplomat was seemingly when you were a young girl trying to broker communication between these adults who theoretically should have been the adults in the room and not you. So I was wondering, in an adverse situation like that when you're young, what, what were the sort of things, the characteristics that you were imbued with during that really difficult time that you think helped build some aspect of your character that you brought forward?
1: The period that that you're referring to began when I was around seven and lasted in different forms and fashions until I was about 15. But, and this was the period of my parents' marriage becoming quite confrontational and, and even violent in some respects, their divorce and then their extended, protracted custody battle over me and my brother. But I think to answer your question, let me go backwards just a little bit because I had two extraordinarily accomplished and wonderful parents who gave me extraordinary wisdom and support. But these were two people who really truly had no business being married to each other. And so I got the good with the bad in that. The good is that Each of them, from their respective backgrounds, came from very modest circumstances and were able to, in this is the 60s and 70s, as African-Americans, really achieve an extraordinary degree of professional accomplishment. My dad was born in segregated South Carolina in, in around 1920, and he had been the son of a minister and the grandson of a minister who had been a a slave initially before the Civil War and, and before he was able to get an education. My dad really was freighted by Jim Crow and segregation and lynching, which was all very much in the atmosphere in which he was raised. And yet he was able to go on, go to college, serve in World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen, And then after the war, during World War II, after that, to go out to the University of California at Berkeley and get his PhD in economics, which was, he was one of the first African-Americans in his field to be able to do that. And then ultimately, after work in the private sector and in other parts of government, he was named a governor of the Federal Reserve System. And so from my dad, I learned all sorts of lessons about resilience in the face of other people's prejudices and how you can't let other people's expectations or negative characterizations of you become your own definition of yourself because then the bigot has won. They've transferred their insecurity onto you. And And you've
0: absorbed it and made it part of your narrative. You
1: believe it and therefore you're going to underperform or you're going to doubt your own capacities to excel. And then my mom, she was the daughter of immigrants who came from Jamaica to Portland, Maine in 1912. But my grandparents had nothing. They had no education. My grandfather was a janitor. My grandmother was a maid. And so many immigrants, they came to this country to try to give their children a better future. They saved and they scraped. My grandfather worked as a janitor until he was 80 years old. And he was able to send all five of his kids to college. And two went on to become doctors and one an optometrist, and another a university president, and then my mother, who was the only girl, the baby of the family, who went to Radcliffe College, was the only, one of only three African-American women in her class, and yet she was elected president of the entire student body. You're and, kidding me. No, and in her senior year, and she was magna cum laude and class marshal, and that was just the beginning for her. She went on to spend most of her career working in higher education policy. And she was known as the mother of the Pell Grant program because she was instrumental in helping to establish and sustain the Pell Grant program, which has enabled 80 million Americans to go to college. And then she went on in the latter part of her career to be on 11 publicly traded corporate boards and be a corporate executive. So she had this extraordinary path that taught me to be proud and to be strong and not to be deterred by being the only woman in a boardroom or the only woman you know anywhere or the only minority and uh, how how
0: did she teach you that
1: she because she modeled it and what she she was just not afraid to be who she was to be a, a strong clear forceful personality she was a working woman with children at a time when really there were very few in her social set and she like my dad but from a very different perspective was determined not to let other people determine what she could and couldn't do. And mm-hmm. she taught me that too. So they were both really strong, powerful, loving parents, but their marriage absolutely fell apart. And predictably so I would say, with the benefit of looking back on it as a, a grown up. So by the time I was seven, they were fighting and and, and throwing things and screaming and yelling almost every night, sometimes drinking too much, just getting really combustible situations. And it was pretty scary for me and my younger brother. And so we'd be trying to go to sleep at night. And as soon as we tried to go to sleep, the screaming and yelling would start and I'd wake up and get out of bed and go downstairs. And and I'd spy on them and try to figure out, is this going to really escalate out of control or not? And if I thought it was, then I'd intervene and try to stop them. Sometimes, quite literally, in a physical sense, but more often to just talk them down as a seven or eight year old and so I don't know if that was d- diplomacy as much as it felt like firefighting, just trying to put out the flames before they engulfed the whole family, and it also we protect-
0: both at varying stages in their yeah after-
1: and try to protect my brother so I I did that out of necessity. And then I had to learn to deal with their separation, my brother and I moving between houses and the pain and disruption that caused I mean, That made me to be, it made me angry. I was acting out in school. I was not nice to my friends. I was losing friends. And my academic performance wasn't what it could have been. And I had to sort of, at some point, stop myself, probably around 12 or 13 and say, look, in, in, in conversation with myself, I can't control these parents of mine, but I can control how I react to it. So let me actually try to repair my friendships. Let me focus on my academics and my athletics and my extracurriculars and and let me try to get through this. And I did, I made the decision to here's what I can fix and here's what I can't. So let me focus on what I can fix.
0: May I just say that's an extraordinarily rare insight to have at that age. And to be able to take stock in your life, how your life was impacting you, decide to relate differently to the issues around you and then make repairs. I didn't start to do any of that stuff till I was like 38.
1: (laughs) I think you're right to some extent, but that's why I went back to tell you about my parents, because I think they had already given me a fair bit of ballast and grit. And then I had great teachers who took a real interest in me and took me in their way. And I write about my godmother who came into my life around the age of, of, of 10 who also gave me another adult figure who was both a refuge and a, and a source of strength and advice.
0: Did these other adults help you? What were they helping you cultivate in our life, your intellectual capacity or your, your femininity?
1: My intellectual capacity and confidence as a student, I would say, for my teachers. My coaches, and I write particularly about a wonderful basketball coach I had who just taught me toughness and determination. And if you get literally thrown to the floor, you got to get back up. And if you got to throw an elbow, throw an elbow. And then my godmother, I think, in many ways, was one of the most important figures because she gave me and my brother a way to separate ourselves from the mess that was my parents custody battle How? Uh, so the story is this like my parents after the fighting after the, the divorce they fought over us for about five years in court it was complicated because my mother had an affair my father knew about it they'd been private eyes and all this sort of stuff going on and so in that time this is like the late mid late 70s she was in difficult circumstances as a mother trying to get maintain or uh, obtain custody of her kids and yet she was a devoted mother and a very a very worthy mother as my dad was a very devoted dad so that was the good news but the bad news was that they just wouldn't let this custody battle go and it got to the point that both their lawyers their divorce lawyers wanted me and my brother to testify in court as to which parent we wanted to be with, which was the last thing we wanted to do. Obviously, we would never want to take sides and alienate one and mm. you know, harm the other. And we were stuck. And my godmother, who really wasn't actually our baptized godmother, but came into our lives as a sort of adopted fairy godmother, had been a lawyer early in her career. And she said to me and my brother, without telling my parents, I've got an idea why don't you guys write letters to the judge, each of you individually and tell the judge you love both your parents and you don't want to have to testify. And maybe the judge will, you know, care about what you think, not just what the lawyers think. And that's what happened. And so we were able to get out of that and have the sort of, I was old enough at that point to have the vicarious uh, pleasure of screwing my parents' divorce lawyers in this process. And my parents too, by implication for allowing this to happen. And, gave us a a degree of independence and agency. So what I learned from my godmother early on is we don't have to be the victims. We can be actors in in our own drama. And so that also was another really vital lesson. So I got, I had good support from different corners and ultimately great support from each of my parents, but not as a unified team as two separate
0: entities. The extraordinary thing as well is that you then, Went on to have what looks like a fantastic marriage yourself. It is.
1: I'm. I am so blessed. And, you know, actually tomorrow when we're celebrating our 28th wedding anniversary. Oh,
0: congratulations! Um, And
1: so I just got incredibly lucky early in college. I met this guy literally the first week of my freshman year, who was a senior. He was living in the same dorm. He was a Canadian, tall, handsome young man. And we started dating early in my freshman year. And 10 years later, we got married. And 28 years later, uh, we're still married. But I freaked out. The divorce really did cause me to be fearful of marriage and commitment. It left me with a whole lot of questions and doubts and insecurities about the sustainability of marriage. And I, the last thing I wanted to do you know, was to do what my parents did to me, which was to get married and have a failed marriage and have that impact my kids. Even though I found this wonderful guy and I, I knew he was wonderful, and we are nine years into our relationship, about to get married, I called off the engagement at one point because I had a freak out. And we then had a you know period of a few months where we you know weren't in communication, and I. He was trying to wrestle with my demons and search my soul and ultimately came to realize through a bizarre sort of intercession of fate that he was the right guy. And that the, the story is, my, we were living in Toronto. My husband was working for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I was working as a management consultant. And right as I freaked out and decided I had to have my own space and think this through before I made a, what I hope would be a lifelong commitment and decided to move out, we were living together, he was assigned to go to South Africa for a month or two to, to do a long documentary, actually on the end of apartheid and Nelson Mandela and all this stuff. And so I was living by myself this monastic life, trying to commune with my inner self, And the day, actually, that he was supposed to fly back to Canada from South Africa, I woke up in the morning, as I always did, to the radio. And the radio was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC News, reporting that his my husband's boss and the anchor of the show he worked on, a woman named Barbara Frum, who was a huge fixture in Canada, had just died of cancer. And we knew that she had been ill and she'd been a real, you know, sort of friend to Ian and my husband and a champion of our relationship and really was encouraging us to, to get married. And when she passed, I just had this moment of this flood of emotion for her loss, but also a recognition that what she was trying to tell us was that this relationship really was right. And so I woke up and I you know, started crying. And I realized that I can't let this go. But then also my next thought was, oh, my God, Ian is about to get on a 20-hour flight from South Africa. And he's going to get off the plane and see the news in Toronto and just be knocked off off his horse. So this is back in the olden days, Gwyneth, when they had these things called white courtesy phones in airports. You know, (laughs) You'd be walking through the airport and they'd page you, so-and-so, you have a call on the white courtesy phone, please report to the So I paged Ian in the Johannesburg airport and Uh got him on the white courtesy phone. And I hadn't talked to him in, in many weeks since before he left. And I said, honey, I've got some really bad news and I got what I hope will be good news. And I told him that Barbara had passed but I also told him that I wanted us to get back together if he would still have me. And then he cries. <laughs> and then I met him at the airport in Toronto, and we've been together
0: ever since. That's a so. nice story. I love that song <laughs> So much. I'm laughing and crying at the same time. Do you think that I'm just trying to understand, like, how was the remnants of your childhood? Like, how were they presenting? Was it that you were afraid to really be vulnerable in that way with someone like to really sort of, or intimate? Or was it just because you? I was afraid of
1: commitment. I was afraid that I might not be able to maintain a monogamous commitment for the rest of my life that just seemed like such a high hurdle and I didn't want to make that commitment if I wasn't confident
0: that I could keep it and do you think your mother's infidelity made you question monogamy
1: absolutely and not just hers but because it wasn't like their divorce was far more complicated than that like it, their marriage had fallen apart before oh, the affair and then she remarried and was happily married and blah 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 but no, I just think that that certainly was among the things that made me question, you know, the durability of marriage. But it was also just seeing their marriage fail in in all of its different aspects and knowing how much damage that can do to kids because I'd experienced it. And obviously my experience is not nearly as bad as a lot of kids. It just made me afraid to commit to something that consequential unless and until I was sure I could do it. I think what I realized is one, you're never a hundred percent sure of anything like that. And two, you got to make your best bet. And I realized that I'm not going to find anybody that I'm going to love more who's going to be better to me than Ian. And Lord knows, thank I'm knocking on wood. I was right about that. Mm-hmm. He's been an amazing life partner and dad and husband. And you just got to you you got to make a judgment based on 90% certainty, if not 100% certainty, and then try to make it work. And that was, thank God, it was the right choice.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They have created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting. And your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon, and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cookstoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon-x.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Something that I wanted to ask you about was before COVID broke in 2019, you said that you were worried about a global pandemic coming. And obviously you had steered us through the Ebola situation. Why were you worried about a global Like, was there something specific or you just knew it was coming? Or
1: I've been in national security and working on global health and development issues for you know 25 years and anybody who is in that universe knows that a global pandemic was inevitable and actually it is this is not going to be the last one we have. we've had them periodically just look at the last 100 years from 1918 we had one in the 1950s we had one in the 1960s we had one in the beginning of the obama administration 2009 h1n1 and then actually To back up, in the bush years, there was an H5N1 flu virus, which was in many ways the scariest one we've seen to date. More scary than COVID because it was equally transmissible and kills kills like 50% of the people who get it as opposed to Mm -hmm. under 5%. And it just never really took off in the way that COVID has in terms of being readily transmissible from human to human. But everybody in this world knows that a pandemic, pandemics are inevitable. We were overdue one, and it was going to come. And it wasn't just me in nineteen, in two thousand nineteen. We've known about this for a long time. It was an issue that we were consumed about in the White House. President Obama gave you know, a number of speeches about his concern about it. I set up an office in the White House to to enhance our pandemic preparedness. We tried to warn the incoming Trump administration because just like China and North Korea, this was something that we anticipated could well become a problem on their watch. Not because we knew when it would happen, but we just knew that it could happen. Mm -hmm. And so we did exercises and briefings and all this stuff. And this was just one of those issues that for whatever reason, in my judgment, didn't fall within their conception of what a national security threat could be and they didn't treat it that way, which is I think why in 2018, my successor, John Bolton, eliminated the office that I'd established on global health security and wasn't attuned to it in, in the way that we were because one, Bush had a, the experience of H5N1 and we'd had in 2009, another flu and we just had, knew this was a real feature of the global landscape.
0: You think he regrets dismantling the office now?
1: I, I can't speak for him. In his public comments, he's claimed he doesn't, that it was the right thing to do because he would claim that he kept some of the people who were in the office, he just scattered them to other offices. But the whole point of having a dedicated team that's full-time job is to look at the world and be monitoring potential outbreaks and enable us to jump on them quickly is to treat it as... A real proximate national security threat. Think about it, Gwen. You know what's a national security threat? It's anything, in my judgment, that has the potential to kill or harm large numbers of Americans. You know, maybe it's a nuclear weapon. Yeah, you know, maybe it's a war with China. Maybe it's Russia taking territory in NATO and starting a war. Or maybe it's a disease. Or the consequences of climate change, which we're now seeing in, in California and Oregon and Washington. Yeah. So we, the, our thinking about national security has to evolve as the nature of the threats evolve. In this month, we're, we're marking the anniversary of 9-11. Horrible attack on our territory. 3000 Americans lost in one day. 50 years earlier, we weren't thinking about non-state actors like Al-Qaeda as terrorists posing a deadly threat to our homeland, so th- the point is, the agility. Of our threats evolve,
0: right? And we got to yeah.
1: keep up with them.
0: And stay. I think that it's almost like you have to constantly press refresh on your on how you're perceiving things. Right. So, in that vein, how do you think about digital threats, whether it be Facebook's ability to proliferate? our culture with misinformation or hacking
1: yeah cyber threats as we like to call them in in government are really real and significant and they take all different forms right they're threats to our privacy and our personal information they which can be weaponized when for example stolen by an adversary to create a massive database that they may use for espionage purposes or they may use for extortion purposes. Then there's what you can do by cyber to and to disable or sabotage critical infrastructure like dams and electrical grids and the the systems that control Wall Street. And then there's how you can use cyber tools in warfare. I mean they're just all different aspects to it which are really all quite complex and and concerning. Now we're seeing in, in the context of Russian and other efforts to interfere in our democracy, weaponizing social media to sow distrust in each other, to sow distrust in our democracy and our institutions or the reliability of our elections. So there are all kinds of ways that cyberspace can be utilized to to threaten our national security and is being utilized. And this is an interesting area. It's not even cyber issues were sort of new and sexy 10 years ago. Now they're understood widely to be real national security challenges. And yet the kinds of multilateral agreements that we might have orchestrated in the past to deal like, for example, with nuclear weapons, like the comprehensive test ban treaty, you don't test nuclear weapons anymore, or you don't, if you don't already have the non-proliferation treaty, you don't share your weapons with others we don't have anything analogous in the cyber realm. Right. We don't have an international what can
0: be done do you think?
1: It's tricky. We would have to to want first of all the United States would have to decide it wants to to have binding constraints on how we act, which I think there are reasons we we might want to resist. And then we have to convince adversaries like Russia and China that they have an interest in joining those same binding constraints, legal constraints and I think that's even harder than a higher hurdle. So this is a case where our collective interests don't necessarily align with the kinds of restrictions that would be meaningful. Now mm-hmm. you got me all
0: foreign policy wonky. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, listen, you're the expert. You know? <laughs> like I'm listening to you and I'm going, Please. Well, can you please be president if not this time, next time? <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're good. We just, uh,
0: we need to elect Joe Biden and
1: Kamala Harris. And then we, we could talk about the future in another episode. How about that?
0: Okay, that's fine. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip but typically the beauty of hosting on airbnb is that while you're away someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do being a host on airbnb is great for those who travel frequently have extra space or own a seasonal home if you've stayed at an airbnb you know the unique experience it offers And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I wanted to ask, you have this incredibly beautiful, defiant spirit, which I relate to, which resonates with me, this self Protectionism and and self understanding that you know has led you in certain moments of your life to be punk rock in defense of yourself, which I love. That's a new one. Okay, it's true. I mean, didn't you gave uh, Holbrook the finger once in a meeting? I know you said you regretted it, but I thought it was. No, ball. no, no, no. I, I, he deserved it. Let's
1: just say that. Yeah. Exactly. It was. It was. You know. It was the gesture of a an angry. 35-year-old or something who had been mistreated. I'd, I'd like to think as a 55-year-old that I would have found a more... Measured? Not measured, but more effective way of conveying <laughs> the same point that couldn't be turned against me as, as evidence of my intemperate personality. I like but, it. But the fact is the guy was an asshole. <laughs> And he was being an asshole, and he wasn't going to get away with it. And so I had to express myself some way. And so I think the message was conveyed.
0: I think that's good. And my (laughs) question to you is, like, where is is that fire coming from? And is it something that you've had to try to mitigate at other points? Or isn't it also a great survival tool? I, I think, again, it goes back to, I think it's
1: always been there in me. Honestly, and I I think some of it is what you're born with, and some of it is what you develop over time. My parents taught me to not take crap off of anyone. That was my father's mantra. Somebody's mistreating you or bullying you or whatever it is, you just, you stand up and you don't take it lying down. And if you punch, if you get punched, you got to punch back. Now, he always would say, you never throw the first punch but you don't stand there and get sucker punch. Yeah. And so that was part of how I was taught mm-hmm. from a very early age. And then I think seeing my parents go through their their divorce, I realized that sometimes if you don't stand up for yourself and worry about yourself, there may not be somebody else there able and willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I've, I've not ever regretted being somebody who's confident in their own skin. The good side of that is I don't have the kind of ego and ambition that's about proving something to other people and myself. Like I, I'm about trying to get stuff done that I think is meaningful. I'm not about doing X, Y, or Z for my own self edification because I actually am pretty comfortable. I know that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm worthy and that I'm trying to do my best in whatever it is I'm doing. And I just wanna be judged more by the results than by the positions or the accolades. And so that's given me a degree of kind of remove from a lot of the things that I think cause people to be aggressive unnecessarily. I'm confident. I I know what I you know think is right. I try to do my best for the right reasons. And I realize that there's some people who are never going to like that, mm-hmm. especially coming from a woman, and even more so coming from a an African American woman. Mm-hmm. I say at some point early in the book that. I was, I've always been a person who's never been seeking other people's affirmation or permission. And that's true. I don't need you to tell me that you like me. I'd love it if you like me, but it, that's fine if you don't. I'd much rather you dislike me but respect me than like me and not respect me, if right. there were that choice. And so I think that sometimes has rubbed some people the wrong way. And then as I also write in the book, in my youth... I was sometimes maybe a little bit too ready to engage a battle. And I've learned some patience. I've learned that sometimes the best way to get from point A to point Z is not in a straight line, that you got to sometimes slow down and take the curves and try to bring other people with you. And that not every battle is a world war. There are little lesser battles. And, and as other folks have taught me, sometimes patience, or as, as I write in the book, is is Hillary Clinton once told me, <laughs> revenge is best served cold.
0: Well, that's kind of deep. That is true. In the book you talk about in your 30s, you your management style was very much from this place of toughness, strength, driving forward. And you receive some feedback that you were maybe missing an element of empathy, as you just touched on right there. So I just wanted to ask you, how did that land? How did that feel to you in the moment? And then how did you change your management style from that feedback?
1: Yeah, this is one of the great sort of learning experiences I had professionally. And it was an example of a colleague giving me tough love, which is telling me the hard truths I need to know, even if they may not be the ones I want to hear. So the the context is that at age 32, I was appointed by President Clinton and confirmed by the Senate to be the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. That means I was the senior American official at the State Department, responsible for all of our embassies, all of our personnel, all of our ambassadors in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was the youngest person ever to be given that responsibility for any region of the world. I think I still am. It, it, I don't think that there's been a younger person yet as a regional assistant secretary, although I'm not positive about that. And at the same time, I, was, I just had my first child. I was a brand new breastfeeding mother. So here I am in the State Department. I'd worked in the White House on African affairs. I, I, was, you know, I was well steeped in the substance. But all of the ambassadors who reported to me were 20 to 30 years my senior. And most of them were career diplomats who'd spent years overseas and decades overseas. And most of them were white men, although not all of them. And they were, I think, very perplexed, to put it politely, that somebody of my age and relative lack of experience was their boss. And I had to figure out how do I lead in this context, gain their trust and respect and take this team in a direction that I knew the president and the secretary of state wanted to go. And so here I was, I was too hard charging. I was like, I was looking at the watch all the time. We got so many months left on the calendar and we got to get this done. And before the end of my first year, we had a series of crises converge. Wars in the Horn of Africa, war in Congo, and I could go on and on. But the biggest shock was when al-Qaeda in August of 1998 bombed our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania and killed a number of our colleagues and many hundred Kenyans. And that whole experience really was just brutal for all of us. And then we had all these continuing Al-Qaeda threats to our facilities all over the continent. So we were literally on pins and needles emotionally and from policy point of view for many months. And my reaction to that was to not step back and pause long enough to really absorb the the human pain of that for each of us, the emotional pain of it, but to try to just keep driving through it because we, we had no choice. So at one point a colleague of mine who I think had been nominated by some other colleagues of mine took me out to lunch at a really crappy Chinese restaurant near the state department and I this was right before Christmas and I thought this is a social thing and as soon as we sat down he says to me Susan I like you I respect you I want to see you succeed but you're about to fail miserably in this job and You're going to lose the the people that you need to lead. You're too hard charging. You don't give enough deference to their experience. You don't uh, show enough tolerance for dissenting opinions, all this stuff. And you're going to fail. And it was like a punch in the gut. And yet I knew he was right. And I knew in that moment that he was doing me an enormous favor. He could have let me fail. They all could have let me fail. And just written me off as another asshole political appointee that they would ignore. But they were kind enough to tell me the truth yeah. and give me the opportunity to course correct. And that's what I tried to do. I thought about it a lot over the Christmas holiday. I tried to think about what could I do differently and better. And I tried to come back and, and change my style. You know not change your whole personality. But I think I grew as a what leader. What
0: did you do? What were a couple of changes that you made? Like tactics? Oh, I-
1: I tried to be far more open to divergent perspectives and opinions, more solicitous of the knowledge and experience of those around me, much more willing to listen and absorb and own my mistakes and tried to empower the people around me to, to give them the, the space and the confidence to bring all of their talents to bear. And I think I did. And I think from that experience, Early in my career, when 10 years later, I was asked to, to serve as UN ambassador and as national security advisor under President Obama, I was a much more mature and I hope effective leader than I was back then because of that intervention in large measure. This man, and I, I should say his name and give him credit, he was, his name was Howard Wolpe. And he was a former congressman from Michigan who had served many years in Congress, including as the chairman of the subcommittee on Africa in the House of Representatives. And then President Clinton had named him his special envoy for the Central African region. And he was in that capacity working with me at the State Department when all this happened. And he did an enormous service to our country and to the world trying to resolve the war in the Congo and in Burundi. But sadly, he passed some a number of years ago and so we don't have him with us anymore which is a huge loss he was a wonderful man one of the nicest funniest goofiest accident prone people i've ever met (laughs) but he could trip over his own feet and fall on the floor and get up laughing he's just an amazing guy
0: let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners
2: When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Good Weave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code innercircle to get free rug samples.
0: Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You talk about your son being a really conservative thinker. And so how does that work in your house? And how do you use your diplomacy skills internally? Wow. No, honestly, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's funny, but it's actually this incredible opportunity to expand patience and perspective and thinking and, and empathy and all these things we're talking about. I'm just fascinated by it.
1: We've got two kids and our eldest, our son is a conservative Republican. And he's found his way to that somewhere early in high school. And when he got to college, you know, he was a leader of his College Republicans Club and turned it into quite an active organization.
0: And then we got- I was surprised to to read that there were that many conservatives at Stanford.
1: (laughs) Well, there weren't until Jake got started and (laughs) then- I think he brought a lot of them out of the woodwork and oh. and Ian, I'm proud of him for that. I mean, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but I'm really proud of his leadership skills. And then our daughter, the youngest is a really progressive. So she's like on the other end of the spectrum and Ian and I are somewhere in between trying to like keep the food from flying at the dinner table. Wow. But the truth is I love both of them enormously, and I'm very close to both of them. I'm, I'm really close to my son. And we struggle with really differing on a lot of policy issues, particularly in the age of Trump where every other minute some new crazy happens that I can't abide and that we have to, We often argue over. We agree on some, a lot of stuff, but we disagree on most stuff. And sometimes those arguments get heated. Look, in this case, I have to confess, I am not so much the peacemaker as a protagonist it's it, if anybody's the peacemaker it's my husband and Jake and I go at it on occasion and what we've tried to figure out is how do we cabin our political differences we don't try to stifle them or suffocate them but cabin them so that they don't overwhelm the larger value that we place on the the, the cohesion of our
0: family of course right and what what is the what is the issue that is the most fiery between you guys <laughs> That's really interesting.
1: I think you know anything to do with trump's outrages often sometimes he agrees with me on them, but sometimes we'll find ourselves arguing over was something you know appropriate or inappropriate. The issue that he's most passionate about that really drives his conservatism more than anything he's religious as well and he's a religious conservative he's very much pro life or as he would call it using his terminology and i'm very much pro choice mm-hmm. and we don't fight about that because that's actually a difference i can respect and and i to me that's not something to argue over that's just that's a a, a different perspective on a, what we would both consider a moral issue mm-hmm. and so it's not what we, that's not a source of friction, but it is a source of, it it is the wellspring of his philosophy on a lot of levels. And he's also libertarian in some respects, and it's, it's funky. So Mm -hmm. we agree on a number of things in the foreign policy realm, supporting our allies and worrying about Russia as an adversary and believing it, he would accept the criticism that he is what Trump would call a globalist which I think is a terrible term. But he believes the United States ought to be actively engaged in the world, and so do I. But it's on domestic issues that we tend to, to really differ more. Now, I'll see. give you one example. Like he, I don't even understand this. He, he's opposed to for the Affordable Care Act, for example. Like, really? Yeah. So Why? I hesitate to speak for him because he's a grown-up now, but he would say that government shouldn't be in the business of guaranteeing health insurance. And he would be doing that from an economically conservative perspective. And you know, my view is health care is a right. And we need to ensure that it's available and, and affordable for everyone. We can differ on how you get there. but So that's the kind of thing. But the bottom line is we can have these debates, arguments, sometimes civil discussions, and differ where we do. But at the end of the day, We love each other and we recognize that what we share as a family is far more important than what we differ on politically. And we also recognize that if we can't, in our little unit, figure out a way to manage through these differences and learn from each other, and I've learned a lot about the points of view of people in this country that I wouldn't otherwise have a ready access to, then we're in deep trouble because we, have a, we really do love each other. We wanna succeed as a family and we're committed to doing our best to sustain that. Think about what that pretends on a national level if in that kind of committed loving unit, you can't succeed. How do we succeed as a nation? And so I'm really very much of the view that whatever our political perspectives, you know, we've gotta be willing to listen to each other and try to understand each other yeah. and not fear and hate each other. And not, not profit on politics that thrive on division and conflict.
0: I agree with you. I really do. I was glad to, to read that you still feel optimistic about America. I wrote this down. You said, we've overcome far greater challenges as a people, a nation, and a global leader. No one has ever won by betting against America's long-term capacity for growth, change, and renewal.
1: I believe that still. And That's I. Good. You. Uh, but I But it's interesting because we just published the paperback version of Tough Love in early August. The hardback version came out not quite a year ago. And I wrote a new afterword for the paperback version that wrestled with the moment we're in and this very question of do I really continue to be optimistic? Because, you know, it's not easy. I'm not like smoking dope all day long. I worry about all these issues and our ability to get through this very difficult period. And I worry about how far we have fallen in so many on so many levels. But I worry most about our domestic cohesion and having a president whose whole platform is to cause us to hate each other. And I worry about his allies in Congress who seem to have rolled over and played dead in the face of that. And so the, the afterword to the paperback, which I really gave a lot of thought to, wrestles with where we are with coronavirus and in this very moment and where we are in our politics as a result of all that's transpired in the years since I published Tough Love. And come to the conclusion, but not without some real sobriety, that those words that you just read remain my judgment. We have the capacity. We have been through much worse. We have much more than unites us then divides us. And the way through this in my judgment, which may sound like contradictory to what I just wrote, but it's not, is that we've got to purge ourselves of political leadership that is, as I said earlier, that is profiting on division and get back to leadership that may differ substantively on the merits of issues, but that recognizes that our strength is in our national unity and in our democracy. And I think we can do that. I think we can do it, and I think we must do it. And maybe we don't do it immediately, which I I think we must. But I just don't see us after all we've been through, how our nation was born, how we survived a civil war, how we overcame two world wars, and the Vietnam era, and the civil rights era, and all these things that were so divisive and, in many cases, violent and not find the wisdom and the courage to do it again. And I believe much lesser circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I believe we have it in us. Maybe it's that I couldn't do the work that I've done in national security and seen so many scary things and not be an optimist. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because I do think that when you get down to it and you peel back all the layers and you ask another human being what they care about. We basically all care about the same things. We Mm -hmm. want our families to be safe. We want to be able to say and do and love and worship as we please. We want to believe that our hard work yields something and that If we just do our damnedest, something will get better. And if not for us, then for our kids. These are fundamental things that are true whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you look like. And we've gotten away from that, and I think we can and we must get back to it.
0: Okay, I've gone way over, so I can just ask you one last question. Sure. How much do you love Barack Obama? Do you love him as much as I love him from a, don't know,
1: Granith. I can't answer that because I don't know what's in your heart. Look, I am so proud to have had the privilege to to work very closely with him for eight years. He is an extraordinary leader, one of the smartest people I've ever met, a really good human being, and a friend that I'm grateful to, to be able to call a friend. So... I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. I'm, you know, I'm not unable to see his all of his human qualities good and, and, and less good, but I love him. And I think everybody who worked closely with him would say the same. He got up every morning trying to do the right thing for this country to the best of his abilities. And his abilities were extraordinary. And yes, We all made mistakes. Nobody bats a thousand, certainly at that level of complexity. But now we see somebody who doesn't even get up trying to do the right, much less have the same capacities to bring to bear. But literally, Gwyneth, what we learned this week, or if we didn't already know, I don't mean to take us into a downer, but we learned that we have a president who knew of something terribly threatening to the American people. He knew how deadly coronavirus was. It's not like he, as he claimed he didn't know or he hadn't gotten briefed or Chinese covered it up. He knew, and he decided deliberately not to take the actions and not to tell the truth to the American people that we needed to protect ourselves. That's an incredible thing.
0: Especially from your purview of national security advisor.
1: Being FDR. And the Japanese bomb Pearl harbor and you say ah eh, you know what that's not such a big deal no everybody as you were don't worry about it and you just don't respond it's inconceivable i'm really proud that i got to work for barack obama and serve <laughs> our great country under his leadership that's beautiful and it was fun gwyneth it was fun for all the all the tough issues and painful moments, you know, there was just, there was a lot of laughter and a lot of joy and music and just fun. So how about you? How much do you love him?
0: So much. (laughs) much. (laughs) Okay, I swear this is my last question and then I'm gonna let you go. I just wanna hear from you what your definition of tough love is. What does it mean to you past just the words together?
1: Tough love to me means loving fiercely, but not uncritically. So it means that you love somebody enough to tell them the hard truths that they need to hear to grow. That's how my parents raised me. It wasn't, Susan, you're wonderful, you're doing a great job. And it's, Susan, we're really proud of you, but you're not really giving it your best shot in math. And you're kind of not pulling your weight around the house and you, you should be nicer to your brother or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how I've tried to raise my kids to tell them we're not blowing smoke up your skirt every day of the week, if, mm-hmm. you know, when you do really well, I'm going to give you all the, you know, positive reinforcement that I possibly can. But if I think you can do better, you're going to hear it from me first. And it's not, it's because I love you. And it's also, honestly, tough love is also how I've tried to, to lead my teams in government and, and serve our country. Mm-hmm. You know, I love this country more than anything, but I don't think we're perfect. And if we, when we have messed up and can do better, we, we have to try. We have to acknowledge our weaknesses and improve on them. Mm-hmm. And then I've benefited, as I described in that story, when I told you about how I was a young assistant secretary and was screwing up. How from other people's willingness to give me tough love as a professional, even people who were not my seniors. So tough love fit for me as a title because it sums up all these aspects of my life, how I was raised, how i tried to serve, how I've tried to parent. And I think it's a, I think it's a good way to be. I'd, I'd much rather see the ways in which I, we, all of us can grow and improve and be challenged to do that, then be misled into thinking or convince myself that I can't do any better.
0: Yeah. At the point of being a human being on earth to fulfill our potential. Yeah. And we, and, we need and, guidance.
1: And to, yeah, and to do better. We're gonna mess up yeah. as individuals, as you know, groups, as a country. And when we mess up, we gotta get back up and do it better. I write in the in the book at different places, but also in this afterward to the paperback. When you get knocked down, as hard as it may be, there are really only two options. You stay down or you get back up. And sometimes you need somebody's help to get back up. You gotta be willing to lean on somebody. Help them, mm-hmm. let them pull you up. But once you're down, if you decide you want to stay down, then that's game over. Mm-hmm. My whole thing is, you know, I've been knocked down my share of times. I'm sure I'll be playing more times. I'm going to do my damnedest to get back up, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's as a parent, whether it's as a policymaker or a public figure, and whether it's by health conditions or whatever. Mm-hmm. And its I don't mean to diminish how hard it is. Think about all... The people that are suffering so profoundly now from the disease from loss from economic crisis from our kids not being in school all the kids that are just wrestling with the psychological and social implications of that but at the end of the day we've got to try to encourage each other to get back up and to keep going because there's not really a a better option
0: you are so inspirational and amazing and i feel so lucky that i got this time with you i really mean that
1: oh my god thank you so much i love talking to you and when we get to see each other in person
0: i know when 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 we're allowed to see each other in person i'm gonna come and just park myself at your feet and listen to you and shadow you all day Thank you for joining me in conversation with Susan Rice. Her book, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For, is available wherever books are sold. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.